A gap year during a pandemic turns out to be an ideal time to set out on your own for a long-distance hike across America. Um, it's incredible. You're basically just a huge group of people connected by this one little thin trail. Coming up, we'll hear how one young college grad overcame her fears and did just that. Or maybe you'd rather pound the pavement in the capitals of Europe again. Guidebook author Jason Cochran shares what we can expect to find in London. For one, they're offering a scenic alternative to the city's crowded subways and buses. You can get a double-decker ferry now. You can stand outside and just ride down the river if you don't want to ride down the city streets. And British guides recommend a slew of places to explore in the south of England, like the illustrious seafaring history you'll find in Portsmouth. The Maritime History Museum, the Naval Museum, you have uh, HMS Victory, um, Nelson's flagship, you've got the Mary Rose. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. The rewards of taking one determined step after another can be epic. In just a minute, we'll explore how one young woman completed a hike that at first seemed impossible. And we'll look at what's new in London with a guidebook author who's just as eager as I am to explore one of our favorite cities in the world. Plus, British tour guides recommend seaside towns and famous castles and cathedrals in the south of England, where you can revisit events that changed the world. Let's start out today's travel with Rick Steves a bit closer to home in the wilds of the western U.S. Skyla Sorensen decided to do something big after finishing college, so she hiked the 2,600-mile-long Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada all alone. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share her experience. Skyla, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So the Pacific Crest Trail, I hiked, when I was in Boy Scouts, I did a 50-mile hike on the Cascade Crest Trail. What's the Pacific Crest Trail? So the Pacific Crest Trail probably borrows some of the Cascade Trail. It um, goes from Mexico to Canada, going along several major mountain ranges. So it starts, I mean, there's so many going through California, but the major ones are the Sierra Nevada and the Cascades in Oregon and Washington. Okay. And is there a little monument where you stop and a little monument where you finish from yes. Mexico to the border of Canada? Yeah. You start in this little tiny town in the middle of nowhere along the Mexican border, and you just take a bus, you show up. And you get walking. <laughs> you get walking. And yeah. that's a long walk. I mean, <laughs> I want to know why would you spend months, five months hiking over 2,000 miles? What got into you? Why, why would you do this? I guess I, I mean, like a lot of people during the pandemic, I kind of lost track of what I wanted to do, of who I was, really. There was just so much uncertainty during that time. And you kind of lose faith in your own ability to, to find a job. So I sort of just wanted to remind myself that I could do something crazy if I wanted to. And you did. Yeah, and I did. <laughs> so how long were you on the trail and, and uh, how much did, did it cost you? I was on the trail for a little less than five months uh -huh. and from, from May 3rd to September 21st. And it cost me about $8,000. <laughs> uh -huh. And most of that money was hotels along the way or what? It was probably mostly food. A lot of it was yeah. hotels, but the food gets pretty pricey because you have to rely on grocery stores for everything. Yeah. Did you feel safe? Um, I felt safe up until I got to Washington and I was walking down the trail and I came across a guy with a crossbow. And that was interesting. But I guess hunting season starts in Washington. Welcome at a certain to Washington time, State. I was not prepared. I went out and bought a very orange beanie after that. <laughs> you didn't want to be mistaken as a deer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> What's a typical week when you're on the trail? So you're in a town. You have to do all of your town chores. You do laundry. You shower. You buy food. You run around and pick up boxes for the post office, send things home, et cetera. 
and then you hit the trail later that day or the next day. You walk for maybe about 100 miles, maybe a little less, uh-huh. maybe a little more. And then you go back to a town and you repeat it all over again. So it's kind of a routine. It is. It's such a routine. And that's actually why I decided I could do it is because I met a through hiker who told me it was one week of hiking, one night in a hotel, one week of hiking, one night in a hotel. I was like, I can do that. <laughs> and a, and a through hiker is somebody who's doing this long distance. Thing. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now I did a 60 mile hike around Mount Blanc. My main concern was not getting debilitated or whatever by a blister. Did you have to take care of your feet? I mean, I would think that's fundamental. Yeah, it was pretty horrible. Um, I had some very painful weeks. I had a day where I had to go to Ashland at the last minute off trail, find a ride to replace shoes because um, I just had a horrible pinky toe injury. So um, it really became just sort of more of a pain management game than it really did trying to heal and recover. Because when you're going 26 miles every single day, there's no recovery time. So that's probably what you talk about on the trail is shin splints and knee problems and uh, how not to get a blister. Yeah, there are no boundaries on the trail when it comes to what you talk <laughs> about. I mean, you just hear the grossest, most personal <laughs> stories. It's, it really brings you closer to people in maybe not a good way. But <laughs> well, that's interesting. Tell me about the community because uh, every time I've done a hike, you feel like there's a community on the trail. And this is, you got your through hikers or whatever. What are the through hikers? Uh, what's the community like? Um, It's incredible. You're basically just a huge group of people connected by this one little thin trail that goes all the way across the country. So you meet people, you don't see them for months, and then you pass them one day suddenly in Oregon. And Ah. you're like, wow, I started with you at the border three months ago. Is it all sort of people in their 20s? Are there a lot of seniors going on it? Or who's what's the demographic? There was a pretty wide range. It was people in their early 20s to people, I mean, in their 70s. It was pretty incredible. And you actually have your lingo. I mean, you were telling me about this. I'm just going to tell you the word and you tell me what it is. Um, Trail magic. That's just a surprise you get on trail. It's just something that someone does for you or gives you. It could be food. It could be a ride. So it's a random love, random kindness. Exactly, exactly. Random acts of kindness. And that would be by trail angels, I suppose. Yes. So trail angels provide that. And they are incredible. The trail could not exist without them. They do so much. And uh, trail family, or I guess you can call it tramly. (laughs) It's just sort of the group of people that you hike with. So I started alone and I hiked, you know, alone for maybe the first four hours. And then I immediately met people. And a girl I met on the second day, we hiked together the entire rest of the trail. And we uh, ended up finishing together. So you're, you're, you're a tramley. Oh, yeah. So we're a tramley. Like a tramley. What's a zero day? A zero day is when you don't do any trail miles. So it could still mean that you're hiking. You just don't hike any PCT miles. I see. So it's that because PCT is the whole goal. You got to get 2,600 miles under your belt. Exactly. So zero days are supposed to be relaxing, you know, hanging out in a town, spending two nights there. Usually yeah. they're spent doing chores, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah. But sometimes you can do a double zero, and that's when you really get oh, to relax. That's, well, that's, that's a vacation from this oh, yeah. weird vacation. So, so you can fit like five showers into a double zero. <laughs> it's great. So speaking of that, what are some of the simple delights that you don't normally appreciate that you're really appreciated when you're on the trail? Taking an unlimited hot shower is the best thing ever because, you know, no one stops you. No one's knocking on the door. There's no coin limit or anything like that. You can actually get all the dirt off you. It's incredible. An unlimited shower <laughs> yeah, with no 
tick, tick, tick from the coin. Exactly. You and then you have that in campgrounds and stuff is a coin. Oh, yeah. And it's so many coin time. operated showers and they're uh, usually cold. So those were my that was one of my dreads when I was um, youth hosteling ages ago. <laughs> you'd have your coins and, you know, you'd be rubbing and scrubbing away and you just didn't want your whole head full of lather when the, when oh, the, when the water ran out. It was that terror. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Skyla Sorensen. She just finished up at Western Washington University. She was studying political economy and history. And she took a year off during COVID to, well, basically to hike from Mexico to Canada, of all things. And she's going to get back into the work life and work down at the Washington State Legislature coming up. But right now she's reporting on her experience. Skyla, you must have had a huge appetite. What was the food like on the trail? Um, it started out as pretty fun to eat, you know, because you just get to eat shortbread cookies, tubes of frosting, ramen. I mean, every night it's just something that you ate, you know, your freshman year of college. Towards the end, it got pretty old and I would dream about, you know, eating a cucumber. <laughs> would you Would you normally eat out of your backpack or would you normally eat when you're in a little town or a restaurant? Yeah, so you would carry all your food with you. Um, and that was kind of a struggle because you had to find food that was high in calorie and low right. in weight. Yeah. So that's why we ended up eating things like gas station pastries. <laughs> oh, gas station pastries. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid on the Pacific Crest Trail, and which is part of what you hiked, we went to the top of a pass above Lake Chelan, and the Boy Scout leader got out the Spam and the pilot bread. And if somebody gave me Spam at sea level, I'd say, no thanks. But on top of a mountain after hiking all morning, mm-hmm. some things really, really taste good. Yeah, Spam was my favorite thing to eat. It was usually a pre-lunch snack when I was just really hungry, but it was still 1030 in the morning. It's time for the Spam. <laughs> oh, baby, I need some Spam. <laughs> I love that about hiking. I really do. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Skyla Sorensen. She's telling us about her remarkable five months hiking the length of the Pacific Crest Trail from the border of Mexico all the way to the border of Canada. Now, you, you had some challenges Tell us about the Mojave Desert. The Mojave Desert was really hard because it comes at the beginning of the trail when you are not in shape for mm. through hiking at mm-hmm. all. And it's just hot. It's hot. There's no shade. You're there's hiking no, there's in no, sand. Uh, there's no relief from it. Mm-hmm. And the water sources are just puddles of water most of the time, unless a trail so you had angel to carry your water. water with you. You must have used a lot of water during that day. Yes. Yeah. You just have to carry mass amounts. I carried probably too much water, but it was worth it in the end because I don't think I really got too dehydrated there. Better too much water than not enough when you're crossing a desert. Mm-hmm. So, Skyla, you would meet these people and you'd have a lot of time in the evenings and so on. Were there impromptu parties or, or what did you guys do for just for social fun? There was someone on trail who would organize these hiker parties that usually had some sort of hiker-related theme. One of them was everything but clothes, (laughs) which meant you had to find something in your gear that you could wear to the party. You couldn't wear clothes. You could not wear clothes. But you were all modestly attired. Exactly. Well, for the most part. You just tape maps to your body. (laughs) Surprisingly, it was less maps and more... You know, ground sheets like for tents. Oh yeah. So we had that wrapped around us. One girl wore you could a, wear a tent. Stylish tube tent. Oh yeah. One girl wore a tent as a ball gown, and it actually looked pretty amazing. Yeah. So, All right. Um, another party was a hiker talent show that happened, and that was maybe six hundred miles into the trail. So it was you know after a month of hiking. So my friends and I wrote a song set to Boulevard of Broken Dreams called Boulevard of Broken Knees, where uh-huh. we just sang about the experience, and it was great. Okay, so you spent five months hiking 2,600 miles, and then you finally get to the border in Canada. What did it feel like? 
I cried. <laughs> I didn't think I would cry, but I did. It was an incredible experience. I mean, just seeing that moldy wooden monument, it just filled me with so much joy because it's something I didn't think I could finish. I didn't think I would once I started. It was just so mentally and physically difficult. Did you ever almost not make it? Did you ever almost give up? Um, my second day, I almost gave up. Is I didn't realize how hard it would be. And just seeing people around me turn back to the border and say, no, I can't do it. I'm done. It was really difficult. Um, so I actually, I called home and I was crying. I was in tears, you know, saying, I don't think I can do this. I have to go home. And they convinced me to keep going. So I did. And, you know, the next day I met one of my greatest trail friends and the rest was history. So I love it. The rest of your life, you're going to look back on this and go, I want some spam. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I, when I finished trail, I thought I'm never doing that again. That was horrible. And I'm already planning to do it again. So good for you, Skyla. Skyla Sorensen, congratulations. And after doing all of that, do you come away with any kind of wisdom? Is there a phrase you picked up on the hike that, that has a special meaning after you've actually done the hike? Yeah. Something people would say on trail that I didn't really understand until the end is if you want to hike fast, go alone. If you want to hike far, go together. You know, that's true for so many things in life. You just, it's the people that make it, and it's the people that get you through. Amen. Thank you, Skyla. It's an inspiration to hear your story. Thank you so much. We have a link to information about the Pacific Crest Trail with the notes for today's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. London's calling, and I can hardly wait. We'll look at what to expect next on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm dreaming of London and what to do there when this pandemic is over. So we've invited Jason Cochran, he's the author of the Fromer London Guide, to join us as we dream out loud about what to see, what to do, what to experience on our next trip to London. Jason, thanks for joining us. Hi, how you doing? Good to have you with us and good to be able to just kind of chat about London. We've both written guidebooks to London and I was kind of thinking, you know, as this pandemic stretches and, you know, people are going to be traveling, but we do want to kind of be able to not be stuck in crowded, cramped places with a lot of people. And there's a lot of people in London. Let's talk for a minute about things that would be open and expansive while we're in London. I was thinking of uh, the Jubilee Walk, you know, the whole walk along the south bank of the Thames is a beautiful way to be. That'd be my first choice too. Yeah. Yeah. That Jubilee Walk goes like from Westminster Bridge where you got the you know, the, the London Eye, the big Ferris wheel and the and Big Ben, all the way down to to what? To the to the Tower of London. Well, that's the part most people take. It really actually goes deep into East London, the parts that most tourists probably won't do. But the segment mm-hmm. that's about two miles that I recommend most people do is the one you just described from yeah, Westminster Bridge. Walk. Yeah, you get the Coatstone Lion and the County Hall where the London Eye is, and you'll see Big Ben's Tower. And you go all yeah. the way to the south. Uh, side of the river, the Thames, until yeah. you get which, the tower which used bridge. to be the it used to be the rough and tumble side, it used to be and horrible. then and then it was the last place that was fixed up after the bombing and everything, and now it's quite pedestrian friendly and like a it's like a long skinny park along the river. You can walk the entire way along the river, which is actually even a relatively new uh, development. The last ten years or so, yeah, it used yeah. to be you know uh, the southern part of London wasn't even considered London back in the old days. It was across yeah. the river. It was over there. It's where you, you went to misbehave or drink or go to the theater. Yeah, or the where you bought things without paying tax. Yeah, and, and then that's where they put the you know the, the coal plants. That most people don't realize yeah. now when they go to the famous Tate Modern, which of course is one of the great museums yeah. of the world that stands so tall facing uh, St. Paul's Cathedral across the river. That used to be a power station. 
Uh, and when you walk into oh, it, yeah. you're entering the old rooms where all the machinery used to be. That's why that part of London was sort of the forgotten area. And now it's the area you can't miss. You know, speaking of walking, there's a company called London Walks that employs Terrific. actors and performers and comedians and all these very, very clever and, and fun to listen to people with a passion for history. And they are inexpensive, and there's scores of these walks. You can do them all day and into the evening all over London. If you pick up that little brochure you see all over town called London Walks. And the wonderful thing about them for me is that you can plan to go spur of the moment. You don't yeah. have to book. You just turn up at the starting point. They go rain or shine, and you join it. And that's really handy when you're on a vacation. You don't necessarily know what you're going to do from minute to minute. You find yourself in the neighborhood of the Jack the Ripper walk, you join it. There you go. And if you're worried about, you know, COVID or just having your space, you're outdoors. You're, outdoors. you're walking around. Be sure. I've been on London walks in the middle of the winter when it is cold and the and the guide is oblivious to the cold because he or she does it every day. But dress up like you're going skiing almost if you're there off season. But it is a great way to enjoy a slice of London and be outside and, and comfortable when it comes to crowds. Another way to um, be enjoying London without any crowds around you is with good ventilation, I can't think of better ventilation than on the top deck of a of a double decker bus tour. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, have you have you done the the river tours now? They oh, they yeah. actually a lot of people are now commuting by the river. The mayor's made a big deal of it, and you can get a double decker ferry now. You can stand outside and just ride down the river if you don't want to ride down the city you know, streets. It's a great thing to do. I don't know if if it still happens, but in a lot of times you'd cut the ferry in uh, about by Westminster Bridge by Big Ben, and you'd go down towards the Tower of London and the the captain would just have a hilarious um, spiel that he would give, a little ad-lib narration of the sights. And it was so funny and so much fun, and you felt like you were getting to know the captain. Well, now you can put a lot of those ferries on what's called the Oyster Card. The Oyster Card is the card that lets you ride the tube and the bus. It's all prepaid, mm -hmm. and you can use them for those ferries as well. So if you don't mm -hmm. feel like going underground where it'll be crowded, yeah. of course, the tube was built in the 1860s or started then, so it's very tight. If you don't feel like being down there and taking all those stairs, you can ride around the city on the river using the same tube card. Great idea. And do remember those boats go all the way out to Greenwich, and mm -hmm. they go all the way upstream to Kew Gardens. Another thing might be to go to the parks. London has great parks. Uh, and in the parks, there's there's lots of action. The changing of the guard, Speaker's Corner. There's lots yeah, of things. Yeah, that's happen. working, right? They've come back after the pandemic. And, you know, I think a lot of Londoners really learned to re-appreciate the outdoors during the pandemic. The parks were busier than ever. And a lot of city streets have been taken over by cafe-type, you know, situations. They bring the tables out. And Londoners are deciding that they kind of like it that way. Now, I was going to ask you about that because I love to eat out, out of doors in, in the Mediterranean area, and that's where it's part of the culture. I know in here in Seattle, where I live, more people are having opportunities to eat out. Even if it's cold, you bundle up and they've got heaters. I yeah, know that's right. uh, in much of Europe, when they stopped allowing smoking inside, uh, they put heaters outside because people wanted their cigarette and they can't go inside, so they're eating outside. In London, do you find there's more opportunities to eat outside? The pandemic brought in so many more than there used to be, and I think it also changed people's attitudes about if they wanted to eat outside. I think they're learning how to say, hey, let's embrace the outdoors. Well, for a long time, of course, these cafes weren't allowed to open out into the streets. But because right. of the pandemic, they were suddenly allowed to, and so now they're developing all these new ways to enjoy mm. uh, the outdoors. And I mm. love it. It changes everything. I was going to say that may be a what I call a corona bonus. I mean, uh, something that'll stick with us after this pandemic is I over. I we're dreaming about London with travel expert Jason Cochran right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Jason writes The Fromer Guide to London, and he also writes Fromer's Guide to Disney World, Universal in Orlando. His website is jasoncochran.com. 
Jason, when I think of London, I think of street markets. Maybe part of it is because I can speak the language and every merchant there will, <laughs> is, a, is a great character that I can talk with. But tell me some of your favorite street markets because those would be great opportunities, pandemic or no pandemic, to enjoy sort of salt-of-the-earth London. Well, in the last 10 years, London has really discovered how to eat well, and it's doing it at these outdoor street markets. <clears throat> I think the famous one that everyone knows about is Borough Market, or at least it's the one that's always in the top 10 lists of things you must do in London. Uh, Borough Market is in Southwark, not too far from the Thames and part of the town we were talking about before, and a lot of luxury-type foods or, or seafood that's just been caught or freshly prepared meals, sometimes in a kiosk and sometimes in an outdoor stall. It's fantastic. You'll have cheeses that you wouldn't even be allowed to bring home because of customs, so it's a great place to try local food. But there's also Maltby Street Market, which is in a, a little bit East London, south of the Thames um, in Bermondsey. That's really come up very fast as another destination for people who want to go have some cocktails outside, eat some crazy interesting food that's been made in front of you. Uh, between the two of them, though, I think I could fill an entire day in a stomach. What was that second market you mentioned? Maltby Street. Because that's very close to Borough Market, isn't it? It's over, just over the river from the Tower of London. It's just over the river from the Tower of London. It's, you probably would have to walk maybe 20, 25 minutes to get in between the, the two of them. Yeah. Okay. When you have a market, you have all sorts of interesting eateries around the market. And uh, I just, man, you mentioned that Borough Market. It is great. Plus, there's famous markets. Portobello Road is up in Notting Hill Gate area. is just beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, people like to go to the Victoria uh, Flower Market. It depends on what you're in the mood for. Each market has its own mood and its own specialty. But I talk about the food because that's my thing. Yeah. And, you know, you know, when I was a kid, people used to make fun of Britain and its food, which I find very perplexing now because some uh. of the best food in the world now is happening in London, not only because it's such a cosmopolitan city and chefs come from all around the world. Uh, and there's a lot of money there, too, which encourages uh, experimentation and, and enables people to get ingredients they can't get. But also just because England has really embraced uh, its farms and uh, the stuff it makes at home. You know, there's the food that you can get now in the UK is nothing like the boiled cabbage they used to make fun of in the 1960s when they're coming out of rationing. So never let people make fun of British food. Right. And that goes for pub grub, too, because pub grub used to be just, you know, greasy fish and chips. But now you've got these gastro pubs that are destination restaurants and you get all the, the romance and the character of a pub. But it is a serious restaurant and it's affordable. Yep. Interestingly, it's harder in the central London area anyway, where the tourists are, it's hard to find an old fashioned pub that just serves greasy food. Most yep. of them all serve elevated food now because that's the expectation. Jason Cochran's joining us from his home studio as we anticipate what to expect in London this year on Travel with Rick Steves. Jason is editor in chief at Fromers.com and writes their guidebooks to London and Disney World Orlando. Jason describes a cross-country road trip to monuments that mark tragic events in American history and how it can help you better understand and appreciate the U.S. today. There's more about his book, Here Lies America, at jasoncochran.com. Now, when we're thinking about traveling in London, there's big, important, must-see museums, and I'm still thinking about, I don't want to be cramped with a big crowd, and when you do things that everybody wants to do, you're close together. If you go into Anne Frank's house in Amsterdam, you're yeah. going to be shoulder to shoulder with people. You know, if you go through the Raphael rooms at the Vatican Museum, you're going to be shoulder to shoulder with people. I think if you go to some of the bigger museums in London, the bigger churches and sites, you'll have more elbow room. The British Museum is a big expanse and you can be comfortable there. What's another idea that you would have for having a museum experience where you're not worried about crowds? 
Well, my favorite place is the National Portrait Gallery because I can really lose myself in these faces and their their histories and these lives I never knew. Unfortunately, the the National Portrait Gallery closed at the beginning of the pandemic for a planned renovation and won't be back until early 2023. But you mentioned how crowded, you know, Anne Frank's house is and 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 the Sistine Chapel. They're both places that you really need to book ahead, right? And have time tickets right. for, and that's something that London has embraced. Uh, because of the pandemic, timed tickets now are necessary in almost every major museum, including the British Museum. Uh, hmm. They don't guarantee your entry anymore unless you've booked in advance. Now it's free and you have to pick a time slot, oh, okay. uh, but they're across the board. We're talking National Gallery, the V&A, the Tate Modern, yeah. the British Museum all want you to book a spot ahead or they won't guarantee that you can get in. And that is probably to monitor how many people are in there at one Absolutely. time, just from a health point of view. And you find that the morning slots are taken up first. So it takes a bit of pre-planning, you know, in the old days. Mm -hmm. Well, two years ago, you could just walk up to a museum yep. whenever you're in the mood in the neighborhood. It takes a bit more, you know, thoughtful planning now. Uh, let's think of some others. I think from the church's point of view, St. Paul's is, is a vast expanse. And it's a beautiful, it's like a museum to see that. And the same with Westminster Abbey. I love Westminster Abbey. That's my favorite because it's packed with graves and historic spots. Because, of course, that's where they've been coronating the monarch for a yeah. thousand years. St. Paul's is sort of in an add-on church <laughs> that dates to the 1600s. Uh, so the Westminster Abbey, is, it's back as well. Time tickets there too, but it's not that full, believe it or not, even now. You know, what I'm thinking of the places, uh, Jason, we've mentioned, Westminster Abbey, St. Paul's, the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery, all of them have audio guides. And not just one, but there's one which is the curator's guide, and it's the voice of the curator giving you his favorites. There's one for students or children, uh, and there's one for the greatest hits. And I think they're a good value. I mean, I was going to say they're not always inexpensive, but they are a great value. If you're a eager beaver kind of traveler that wants to learn about your visit, learn a lot, there's nothing like following the audio guide through Westminster Abbey, mm -hmm. for example. And you'll often find that the things for kids will be free and the things for adults they'll charge for. But you also yeah. find that some of these places put on YouTube videos. In some of the, these galleries, they'll have what are called one o'clock talks, where they stand in front of a certain painting, a different one every day, and give you its history. And sometimes they'll record them, put them up on YouTube, so you can plan ahead of time. Ah, ah. I want to see that thing that I just saw on the on the National Gallery's web, uh, YouTube channel last week. It's a good way to plan if you're careful. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Jason Cochran, and he's the author of The Fromer's Guide to London. And Jason, again, on this theme of pandemic travel, the theater, if you want to go to an open-air theater, we could go to the Globe Theater, right? That's the old Shakespeare replica theater. Uh, but you do pack the people in there on the ground floor. Well, usually. I think they're a bit easier in, in, during the pandemic. But keep in mind, the Globe is really only the warmer weather months, well, relative term sometimes uh, in Britain. That's a good but, point. Uh, in, in the wintertime, you won't be able to go inside the Globe unless it's just the museum part. But West End is up and running again, and they're being very careful, especially with the casts, on mm -hmm. isolating and tracing if anything pops up. They've been open, I think, longer than Broadway has even. So they've been, they've been very careful to try to get back up as carefully as possible. That's great. I was thinking about what's new in London. And for me, what's new in London is London post-Brexit. I mean, I haven't been to London since the actual implementation of Brexit. What's it like now? What's the impact on, uh, on the Londoners and on our visit now that um, Britain is out of the EU? Well, you know, the implementation of Brexit has been a very slow, years-long process that still isn't completely solved and it's coinciding with the implementation of pandemic measures. 
London is still undergoing a lot of change and some of it's pandemic related and some of it is Brexit related as they try to figure out how they're going to supply restaurants, for example, or import uh, different needs that tourists will consume. So it's, it's a big question mark in a lot of ways. And we're waiting to see what Brexit does to uh, things like hotels, because as businesses move to the continent, if that's what it is decided to do, if they want to be within the EU, that will free up more luxury hotel space that might perhaps lower the price for tourists mm. to come in. So there's a lot of changes that have yet to be determined uh, simply because we haven't gotten back up to speed yet. So we haven't tested everything yet to know how it's going to start working. You know, one of my favorite experiences in London is to go down to the Docklands. And that used to be the old harbor for the shipping. And now it's a massive office park and all these glassy skyscrapers. And the Docklands, the tube station there is just sort of a massive river of people coming in with rush hour and then leaving with rush hour. Do you think we're going to find that nine to five banking business, international trade crowd, that energy that is to me so London? Are we going to find that in, in coming years? I think that London has hit a peak when it comes to that kind of traffic and those kinds of business workers, but they're, they're not going away entirely. And the Docklands still growing. They're still building. Um, they're still expanding the train routes there. So, no, it's it's still going to be quite something to see, although we just might see more working from home than we used to. But we know that feeling here in the U.S. I mean, things you are know, still cooking. They're just huh. not at high of a temperature as they were before. You know, Jason, when I think of my London guidebook, which is in its 20-some edition now, I've got so many little restaurants and, and uh, small hotels that are family-run. And I am, with some trepidation, so eager to go back after COVID and update this thing and find out who is still in business. Have you thought much about the impact of the pandemic on the little businesses that can't survive two years without much income? What do you expect when you go back to update your London guide? So you know the feeling. I mean, when you write a guidebook, you fall in love with some places that you love sharing with people. And I've actually checked up on some of my finds and find that they're still open. London is slightly different position than the U.S. They got um, more help from the government to stay closed than the Americans did. So although there will be some closures, they have not been uh, the, the apocalypse that there has been in some American cities. And, and some of the places I feared the most are still there. You know, I hear that across Europe. There's more support from the government in keeping small businesses going. And there's also a, a passion among local people when they're not enjoying international travel to patronize their little little mom right. and pops at home. And that's what makes Europe so characteristic. Yeah. And, In the UK, so they knew fun. that if they were going to tell people to lock down, they also had to give them the support of being able to lock down financially. Right. And that's paid off in the end. One thing that is changing in the restaurants, though, is the ingredients are changing. That has to do with Brexit. You know, that rare French cheese that used to be an important part of that central dish at that restaurant you love might now have an English version of the cheese in that in the recipe. Whoa. Little things like that. But yeah. that's a minor thing. It, it encourages them to explore British produce uh, even more than they were exploring before. Jason Cochran, author of The Fromer's Guide to London. Thank you for joining us. And both of us are excited to go back to London. What do you want to see when you finally get back to London? What are you looking forward to most? Oh, boy, that's a really great question. You know, I often dream of being back in, in the National Portrait Gallery, like we were just talking about, mm. on a Thursday evening when there are people sitting on the ground uh, with a notepad drawing someone from the Tudor period. 
yeah, I would like to be back there on a Thursday night or a Friday night uh, at one of its like late evenings having some champagne and, and, and looking at some old scientists who died in the 1800s. <laughs> That's part of London's high cultural society, and it is so accessible. That's one thing you got to love about London. Thanks again, Jason, for joining us, and happy travels. Thank you. British tour guides take us beyond London to the charming coastal towns of the south of England and its major historical sites from World War II all the way back to the Battle of Hastings. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. From the legendary white cliffs of Dover above the English Channel to the harbor at Penzance near the tip of Cornwall, there's no shortage of interesting historic sites to explore in the south of England. We can start where a duke known as William the Bastard from Normandy in France came ashore at Hastings in October of the year 1066. He would become known as William the Conqueror by the time he made it to London. Our guides to the historic sites of the south of England are Mark Seymour and Tom Hooper. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. So do you ever imagine what it was like when uh, William the Bastard landed on those beaches in the south of England. Mark, can you kind of explain the excitement of that event and the importance of it and what we might see today as tourists? It must have been fascinating. It was a very brutal time right across Europe. This man laid a claim on the English throne. He came, he saw, he conquered. Um, There's a place down there in Hastings, we call it, Battle Abbey, Uh, a number of sites down there which are very relevant to that particular event. I think uh, the course of British history, not just English history, British history has, has been run the way it has because of this one event, this invasion of... Uh, of How the, so? How could it have been so important? Changed the whole government. Changed the government. You were more centralised after that? Uh, what's more, it was feudal. It became feudal. It introduced the feudal system, basically. Now, William the... Uh, he was named William the Bastard, right? Until he, he had his, big his original French nickname was William the Bastard. He was illegitimate. Okay, he lands, he wins. Suddenly he decides, you know, I like this name better. Let's call me William the Conqueror. But that was the name given to him in France afterwards. Is that right? We still kept the bastard. Yes. He basically decides he owns everything, going to change the entire system. But, of course, you do need to be crowned. So he was crowned on Christmas Day, 1066, in Westminster Abbey as King of England. A date every English school kid, I'm sure, has to remember. Now, when we're looking at this Battle of Hastings um, lore, we can go to, um, Mark, what did you say? It's Battle Abbey. Uh, Battle Abbey is one of a number of sites down there on the south coast, uh, reputed to be the site of the actual battle. Um, there's some debate about that at the moment, but uh, it certainly it, it, it attracts people. For, I agree with you. For a very long time, people would go to Battle Abbey and you look out over the landscape, which isn't quite as it was then, and they think this is where the battle took place. Some of the latest researchers... It took place under a roundabout in the village yes. of Circle. Is that right? Because yes. I remember going there and walking through it like we'd walk through Gettysburg here in the United States or something, and they yes. said, this happened here and this yes, happened there, but you never yes, really know. Done it, yeah. A lot of a military history, and if you go, we're talking about the south of England, if you go to Dover, I mean, Dover is sort of the, the jumping-off point for Britain. We've got the, the famous White Cliffs of Dover. Talk about the geology all across south England, because it's not just unique to Dover. Um, there are many, many prominent features, and of course the south coast is known for the white cliffs of Dover, chalk, chalk, and more chalk. Beautifully white in some areas, uh, uh, polluted in others, but uh, some of the beautiful stretches of beachy head. Um, so in South England, you've got this thin layer of topsoil. Dig down below that, you've got this chalk. White chalk. We all, we all have images of the white cliffs of Dover, but actually anywhere, uh, any number of places along the south there of England. There will be bluebirds over the white, white cliffs, cliffs of Dover. Dover. 
tomorrow. Just you wait and see the World War II hit with Vera Lynn. <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> to the White Cliffs of Dover. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the charms and the White Cliffs of the south of England. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Susan's calling in from Loomis in California. Susan, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Good to be here. Hi. Do you have a, a comment about your travels in the south of England or the Dover area? I love Dover. I've been there five or six times now. Dover Castle was actually my first trip to England. And I'm a huge history buff, especially World War II history. So that's what led me there. So Dover Castle, what was it about Dover Castle that, as a history buff that you liked? The wartime tunnels. Now, the wartime tunnels, uh, Tom or Mark, what, what are the historic importance of these? The uh, Admiralty during the uh, Second World War, um, they uh, realized that Germany was a threat just across the channel, 24 miles away across the straits. They could actually wave at each other on a clear day if they wished it. And of course, so they were we, actually standing off there. They, could, they knew was this was just a standoff. Yes, the, British the, the, the British thought there was going to be an invasion, but we had to protect the, the channel anyway. Um, this was a focal point. So uh, they, we literally tunneled into the soft rock and we created a huge underground system of uh, tunnels and chambers to help protect that area. And also part of the planning of the war as well. Now, did those tunnels have anything to do with the French threat during the Napoleonic Age? Yeah, there are also, <laughs> there are also tunnels that go back to the Napoleonic times. So where... at Dover, you've got this closest yeah. point to the continent, and it happens to be capped by a, a Roman lighthouse, so it goes back yes. 2,000 years yes. from, and, uh, from a military point of view. And, and you've got the yeah, you've embattlements got the... anticipating a French invasion and then later yes. a German invasion. You've got, the, you've got the oldest building, basically, in England. Then you've got the extraordinary Dover Castle, which used to be said if you won that, it was the gateway to England. What is the oldest building? Uh, the lighthouse. Oh, the actual Roman yeah, lighthouse. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Susan, when you were at the uh, Castle of Dover, what do you remember from a, a vivid military history point of view? The views over the channel mm-hmm. from Admiralty Lookout. It was incredible. And then uh, standing near Hellfire Corner as well. So what is Hellfire Corner? Uh, that is actually where... Uh, Admiral Ramsey could look out across the channel from the tunnels under the castle. It's amazing. It's amazing yeah. to think that they could actually look out and they knew that, that the Germans, the Nazis, wanted to get over there and they were just getting ready for the offensive. It Was the miracle of Dunkirk in the same area, Tom or Mark, or where was that? Um, well, basically, it's, same it's, coast. it's the same coast, yeah. And uh, uh, the orders, as Tom said earlier on, the orders actually went out from those tunnels to collect small boats, a flotilla of small so boats to help this was the desperate, the Allies the were in a corner in, any, uh, across the... Any boat you could get hold of. So uh, little fishermen, anybody with a ferry boat, anything, heading on over it's and even, a mass yeah, evacuation, absolutely. and they pulled it off. Susan, thanks for your call. Thank you. Joseph is calling in from Temple in Texas. Joseph, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Do you have a, a memory of South England in your travels? Yes, I would like to mention a wonderful place to visit, and that's Winchester Cathedral. Winchester Cathedral. What, why did you like that so much? Well, uh, there's a lot of history to Winchester mm-hmm. Cathedral. It's my understanding that in the day, all of the kings were crowned there, and there was a double crowning. You were coronated there and then had a second coronation uh, at Westminster in London. Winchester is the older capital, you could argue. That's totally correct. And some of the remains of the earlier kings are interred in Winchester. You're absolutely right. And the building itself is, I think you'd agree, phenomenal. It's a mixture of particularly Norman and Gothic architecture. So, Joseph, of all the cathedrals, why did you end up at Winchester Cathedral? Well, the other reason is that 
with a bit of genealogy searching, I figured out that my 12th great uncle was the Bishop of Winchester and was actually buried there and actually performed the sermon for Queen Mary's funeral. Wow. Did you find his grave? We did. It was very interesting. You know, I went in and I thought, okay, well, we'll just wander around and I'll find the guy. And, you know, after about one minute, it was obvious that that wasn't going to work because this place is full of dead people. (laughs) (laughs) Most most of our churches are. The stinking rich. So, uh, you know, my wife was with me and so she'll always go ask someone. And they have a book that has a listing of every grave and monument in the church. And they hunt around a minute. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He's suspended in the floor. Now, of course, although you, he, your answer is very famous, Jane Austen is the most famous burial in Winchester. In the, is that's that right? True. Yeah. That's true. So Jane Austen so another, is buried next to your uncle. reason to mm. you know, make a pilgrimage to this site. All right. Joseph, thanks for your call. Thank you. You bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Mark Seymour and Tom Hooper, two English tour guides, and we're talking about the south of England. I want to talk about some of the, the main sites across the south of England. We haven't mentioned Canterbury. Why, why would somebody want to go to Canterbury? Canterbury is the cradle of Christianity, in a sense, in this country. In it's where Augustine arrived, having been sent there to Christianized the country in 595. So that's why the, the Anglican Cathedral is there, the headquarters of the That is why Anglican the headquarters, Church. the Archbishop of Canterbury's headquarters, and it's why it's the primate of all England. And then, Mark Seymour, when we think about Canterbury, we think about the 12th century assassination of Archbishop Thomas Becket. Why is that such a famous event in, in, in history in England? It prompted a a change in our political system. There was a clash between the church and the state. Uh, The church at that point in time held much power, much land, much wealth. The state, i.e. royalty, they uh, were always struggling for funds, and this was a situation where uh, events were changed because of church versus state and a dramatic setting for an assassination. Especially as, you know, you're talking of the church, which is um, Roman Catholic Church, and how much power the pope has, how much power the king has, and the king wants the same power as the pope. And a few hundred years later, things come to a head with mm. Henry VIII and the and, Reformation, and uh, not only and he dissolves all the monasteries, yes. right? And he just Absolutely. takes over the the church, yeah. the Reformation in England. Bam! Over eight hundred of them gone by. Wow! And all over England, you can see these ruined monasteries, yeah. everywhere, ruined abbeys. everywhere you go, gorgeous abbeys. Yeah, and now they're just like ornaments for beautiful parks. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. When you think about the south of England, a very uh, popular destination for people just looking for a a Coney Island is Brighton, and you can just go there direct, even in industrial times. Get on that train from London, straight south, yes. you get to Brighton. Oh. What does Brighton mean to the people of England? It's the main, or at least it was historically, certainly back to the Victorian period, it was the main seaside resort for the whole of the southeast of England. Think of London, just an hour's uh, yeah. rail ride to the north, a huge industrial population. One of the biggest industrial cities in the world, and then right, right there, made to order in an age long before you could fly to the south yep. coast of Spain. Get on a steam engine in those days, which was a new invention, get to the south coast in just a couple of hours, enjoy the sea for the it first al- time. It also causes the uh, downfall of Bath, because suddenly... Salt water in the seaside becomes the thing. So Bath so was Brighton. the uh, sort of the ultimate um, mineral spa town before that, yeah. before and the then, industrial yeah, age. And, and then, you know, salt water is good for you. So you yeah. go to Brighton and you get these extraordinary terraces, row houses being built. And the society moves to Brighton and the Prince Regent, he builds this extraordinary 
overstated pavilion there. So like the Prince Charles of like, the day? Like the Prince Charles of his day. But yeah, he built the Brighton Pavilion, yeah, right? which is one of the three things that you should visit if you go to Brighton. It's wild. This is a very over-the-top palace. Quite yeah, nice to yeah. see. What are the other two things you The other two things I would say would be to see the coast with the pier, which is your Coney uh, Island bit, and the other thing is the antiques bit, which is antiques. called the Lanes. The lanes. Yeah, and these, these tiny little places you walk through. It's a hub for antiques yeah. collectors and dealers. I love that because for a tourist in, from America to go to an antique shop mm. in England is like, yeah. it's like it's, way better than you know, one. It's one after the other. Please don't bring it all back home. Leave something for us. Yeah, I think we have to be careful what we can actually export <laughs> or something like that. But I am fascinated by the whole concept of the pier. Because back then, people yeah. would get the fresh salt air. They didn't want to go out to sea. So. They, also, they also had these bathing machines mm. where you, you sort of were wheeled. This sort of hut-type thing was wheeled into the sea. Is and you'd right? walk down the steps into the water. So the, you could, it's a very um, high-class way very to, high class to, way to go bathing. It was also a way to keep your privacy, of course. In those days, people didn't show anything. Even an ankle was, was uh, shocking. People um, would bathe so as if they're dressed in, in wetsuits. Yes. yes, absolutely, yes. <laughs> All right, now around Brighton, that was the sort of the Coney Island resort and, and where the elites probably would hang out. And you could have your candy floss on the pier, and I guess that's what you call cotton yes. candy. Yeah. But all around that is Beachy Heads in the South Downs area. Uh, Mark, talk about uh, the wonder from a hiking point of view of Beachy Head. Well, again, picture the uh, the phrase, the White Cliffs of Dover. I mean, move it to Beachy Head. Um, these really are the epitome of White Cliffs. They're, they're yeah. gorgeous. They're high, splendid views, grass downs stretching for miles. It's like um, a it's like a golf course that goes right to the edge of the cliff mm-hmm. and it then is. plummets yes. straight yes. down into the sea. And there mu- is the peril of it. Yeah, much of it does. But there's a there's a, a charming little villages, Alfriston, yes. places oh, like mm-hmm. this. Alfriston is phenomenal because it's it, it has, amongst other things, the first National Trust property, which is a barn. And the National Trust is the charity in England that looks after and conserves buildings and landscape for the future. So if you want to enjoy the landscapes and the, and the heritage of England, South Downs is, is a delight. Our guides are recommending the sites in southern England right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Tom Hooper is a proud son of Cornwall and a certified Blue Badge guide based in London. Tom was given a Member of the British Empire Award by the Queen for helping to raise the country's standards for tourist guiding. Mark Seymour comes from Bath in the southwest of England and offers small group and family tours at seymourtravels.co.uk. They tell us about the death of Admiral Nelson in the Battle of Trafalgar with one of the worst puns you'll hear all year. It's in the program extra on our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. As a reminder, be sure to check websites for attractions you want to visit for the latest on their visitor policies. Fred's calling from Oak Hill in Virginia. Thanks for your call, Fred. Well, thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure. I'm calling about a different part of the south of England. Uh, One of my wife's ancestors is buried in Exeter Cathedral, and we were just thinking of visiting that site and also spending some time in that part of England. We're interested in how much time we should plan to drive around there, plus Devon and Cornwall. So if we were to include that area too, what sort of time frame should we plan? That's a great question. What's a good sort of uh, itinerary and vacation for this region? Depends where you're coming in from, but uh, let's assume the southeast, either a major airport like Gatwick or Heathrow, or even one of the ferry ports coming across from Europe. Um, so you're heading from the east to the west. Follow the main road, uh, dual carriageway and motorway, uh, running from Dover, potentially right through the south coast, stopping perhaps in Penzance. Heading back to Exeter, you would need uh, to do that comfortably, taking just a handful of sites, three to four days. I would 
also suggests that if you didn't want to do all the driving, which is for some people a little bit of edgy, mm. catch the train all the way down to Penzance, mm. then hire your car, mm -hmm. drive and do your Devon and Cornwall bit, and then in this case, come up to Exeter. The cathedral is phenomenal. Mm. It is the thing in Exeter, and then return the car and come back. Now, if somebody wanted a, a more uh, complete look, you could quite reasonably pick up the car at the airport, yeah. use the motorways to get to the start and the end point, yeah. use small roads along the way, and you could conceivably, in 10 days, enjoy a trip from Dover all the way to Land's you Edge could. in the southwest. Yeah. And on that, you would hit all the places we've been talking about, plus you'd go to Portsmouth, and what are the big sites in Portsmouth? You've got now the uh, uh, the Maritime History Museum, the Naval Museum. You have uh, HMS Victory, um, Nelson's flagship. You've got the Mary Rose, Henry VIII's flagship. Um, now, that Mary Rose, that's that's quite a bit older. That's 500 years old, and that's an amazing artifact. Yes. But from a from a English patriotism point of view, to, it's almost like a shrine, isn't it, to go to Admiral oh, Nelson's ship? Absolutely, because it's, it's the Battle of Trafalgar, 21st of October, 1805. Oh. He finally puts to rest Napoleon's claim to the seas, and we name the channel the English Channel. Oh, instead of the French it Channel. Just... <laughs> That's interesting. I never thought about that. <laughs> All right. The English survived that threat from the French. And, Fred, when you're talking about traveling across South England, you want to stop by Portsmouth. It's almost a pilgrimage for anybody who's going to be uh, celebrating uh, the Battle of Trafalgar to go to see HMS Victory. Well, that's great. We'll add that. Also, um, you continue, first of all, Devon, and then Dartmoor, and then you get to Land's End. Uh, just very briefly, uh, Mark, I know you're from Devon. Tell us, in a nutshell, if you're traveling across South England, what you'd want to be sure to do in Devon. Um... As an American or any new world traveler, as I would say, American-Canadian, uh, I would stop off in Plymouth. Plymouth mm -hmm. is, uh, again, it's a huge naval town, naval establishment town. Some wonderful sights there, but in particular, if you go into the old quarter, you have the Citadel, you have the Hoe, uh, but you also have the Barbican. Now, the Barbican is where the Pilgrim Fathers sailed from. Hmm. The Mayflower. The Mayflower. All right. And Tom... Cornwall would be the sort of the finale of your trip across South England. It would be the grand finale. And Speaking as a Cornishman. Of as a Cornishman. And I, I think I would head down to the far end and probably base myself in Penzance, which is a very good place to go out from, and I would totally avoid going to Land's End. So we can save Fred and other travellers who have rented the car for this adventure a few hours by not driving all the way to Land's End, which mm. is quite a tourist trap, but there's plenty of worthy sort of finales of this South England there are, trip. There are, yeah, and there are lots of rocky coves all over that area, which would be with the same flavor as Land's End. There you go. Fred, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Yeah. Have a good day. Good luck on your trip. Thanks. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been joined by Mark Seymour and Tom Hooper to explore the attractions of the South of England. Mark and Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for having us. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Kazmura Hall and Donna Bardsley. Rick posts frequently to Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find more with Rick online at ricksteves.com. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. You can experience my favorite European people, places, and stories in my newest book, For the Love of Europe. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com. <laughs>